Boom. And it's and it's poor Bogey, right? Poor Bogey. Think like up up your nose, Bogey. <laughs> I leave that in. <laughs> Wasn't until I tried to stop taking it, I realised I can't. And then my whole life just took a massive downward spiral. The doctors told me I'm going to die from malnutrition. I used that negative energy that they were feeding me and society was feeding me, I used it. And I thought, I'm going to prove these people wrong and it made me feel nice. And I was starting to get off on the feeling that it proven them wrong. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Getting Back Up with me, Anthony Ogogo. And as I'm sure you're aware by now, in this podcast, I talk to amazing people. People that have done great things in both their life and or career, but only after suffering massive setback and adversity. And this week is like no other. This week, I'm talking to a legend, a man amongst men, a guy called Paul Bogey. Now, Paul hasn't got superstardom fame. He's not like a Tony Bellew or a Bayerak and Fenwar. Paul Bogey is a very regular guy that made some bad decisions as a youngster and he paid the price. Paul Bogey is an author. He, he raises money for the homeless in Scotland. His books are called From Heroin to Hero. And that's very much Paul's life. Paul, for seven years, was addicted to heroin and in the following hour or so, he tells me all about those dark, dark, dark times. Now, heads up. We talk about drug use, overuse, drug abuse in this podcast. We talk about suicide, how Paul very, very, very almost came close to ending it all. But this is called getting back up. So, of course, we talk about Paul's significant and an unbelievable comeback where he became a royal Scots guard guarding Her Majesty the Lake Queen. And there's so much more. It's a truly empowering, unbelievable story from a man that I, I think the world of. You're gonna enjoy this one. No, you're gonna love this one. I loved it. I've listened to it three times now just because I get so much myself from this podcast. So, with that being said, please sit back, relax, get your pen out, make some notes learn from this great man. Without further ado, let's get stuck in. Paul Bogey, as in up your nose, as you just now told me. Welcome to the Guessing Back Up podcast, mate. Thank you for having me on, mate. I appreciate it. Watch out for those double thumbs, because what happens when you do a double thumb? D -d 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 give me, give me a double thumb. For people that are listening to this and not watching, we're filming this on, online and we've learned that when Paul does a double thumb, there's fireworks in the background of his, of, of his screen, which is really, really funny. Hopefully, if you can watch this, you can see what we're laughing about. But if you double down with thumbs, there's rain, there's hail, um, <laughs> and the love heart. Right, mate, uh, you, you have an incredible story. An unbelievable story, and I want to approach this with as much humility and respect as I possibly can. I've spent the last three, four days listening to your audiobook that I think we're going to start with. The audiobook. Your book is called From Heroin to Hero. Yeah. Oof. 
Paul, for those people that don't know who you are, just top line, just skim over, just skim over your journey and, and why we're talking today. Um, so I'm uh, born in Edinburgh, Scotland. You may will tell with accent. Um, I had a relatively normal life, a good upbringing, amazing strict parents. At the age of eighteen. I was unfortunate enough to become addicted to heroin. Then my addiction lasted for seven years. I took many other drugs in that time and I became depressed, eventually ending up suicidal. And after I got help and got clean, sorted my life out, five years after getting clean, I was standing outside Buckingham Palace, guarding the late Queen, with a red tunic, a bearskin on, and a rifle. <laughs> um, you know, my whole life had changed. It was amazing. Then I was in a serious car accident where I broke my back, crushed my spine. I got medically discharged in 2015. I had a run-in with opiate medications that the doctors put me back on. Um, I became addicted to drugs again, albeit from the from the chemist. And then um, during lockdown, I had a brilliant idea to to write and finish my book, Heroin to Hero, and to donate all the all the proceeds from my book to homelessness in Scotland. And I've done I've raised just over eighteen thousand pounds so far, just on my own. On social media, um, it must be the fireworks that's making all the difference. With the <laughs> thumbs up, um, but yeah, it's just been I've been self promoting and just trying to help people less fortunate than what I am. I do my talks on addiction, how I got clean, how I sorted my mental health, how I got back up after being suicidal, and I've helped lots of people around the world. And I visit schools, I visit prisons. I do my motivational talking, you know, in charities, football clubs, um, anyone that's willing to listen. And that that's that's who I am, mate. I hopefully I hopefully I skimmed over it quick enough because I can't talk for Scotland. And I can talk for England, mate. Together, mate, we're talking for the whole of the UK. <laughs> um well, so yeah, as I said, uh, you mentioned your book and I wanna start at your book and I've listened to your book um so for the last few days now. And we had a real brief chat. We had a real brief chat last week, arranging the times for this podcast. And I, I, I when you spoke, I just captivated and um, listened to you talk on your because you obviously do the, the mainly do the main voice in, in the Audible book. Um, captivated, and you said just now, anybody's willing to listen, I'm willing to listen, and my li- my listeners and watchers this podcast, we want to listen and, and learn from you because you have so many life lessons that I've already learned from your book and, and you've got a great story. And I think you're a wonderful, wonderful human being that looks at, you've looked at your old version of yourself in the mirror and you want to be more than that. You want to grow from that and more than that, you want to help other people. And I think, mate, I'm, I'm thinking already, I'll get the goosebumps, I'll get inspired or everywhere. And you certainly are an inspiration, young man. So um, your book, Heroin to, to Hero, um, I said to you just now, and I said to you, I want to stop the conversation because I want to have it on air so people can hear. I mean, it was a captivating book. 
because you tell your story and it's you. And I mentioned like you know, there, there are other voices on the book. Like it's mainly narrated by you, but other voices. We've got a female voice as well telling your story for you. It's like there's mistakes in the book. People make mistakes when they're reading the book. You, you, you can tell they're reading the book. You can sometimes hear the, the page being turned, which is not unusual when you listen to a book from, from, from Audible. But for me, mate, it grabbed me. Honestly, it you know it grabbed me by the by the chest and it pulled me in even more because it's so authentic, it's so real, it's not polished, it's not shiny, it's not brand spanking new, it's not ta-da, look at this, it's authentic and it's as real as it gets. And from not even knowing you, your book is just you. And I felt like I was sitting there opposite you hearing your story come out of your mouth for the first time. And before I pass over to you to talk about that and tell me your reasoning for that, I want to say, listen to your book, mate. Do you know what? Of you two, a book about addiction and drugs. Do you know what? Your book made me want more than anything. A cup of tea. <laughs> you have to say about, you start each day with a cup of tea. I've got my cup of tea here. <laughs> it's going, and you make me, yeah, you made me want to have a cup of tea. So, and in my life, whenever things are getting stressful, have a cup of tea and all's good in the world. And living in America now, it's hard to get a good cup of tea. So I've got to go for I've got to go to the, to the English shop, to the, the British shop to get a cup of tea. So with that being said, mate, over to you, sir. Yeah, so I was on, thank you, mate. I, was, I, I need to stop doing double thumbs up because I'll, I'll be loaded with fireworks <laughs> the whole time. So I'm trying to sit with my hands on my lap the whole time. But um, I, I appreciate the kind words. Um, how that whole thing came about was... I had written the book and published it and uploaded it for paperback and ebook to Amazon. And I actually done a charity boxing event with some professional boxers, um, Ben Judas L. Jones, I didn't know if you mm-hmm. know him. Um, I, I don't, it flopped anyway. Um, but all these pro boxers, um, I spent some time with them down in North Yorkshire and I was talking about the book. And one of the gypsy boxers turned around and said, Paul, is it an audio book? Because I'm dyslexic. And I said, no, it's not, mate. But it's something I'll look to in the future. So that planted the seed, you know, about doing an audio book. Um, I got invited into HMP Perth. Mm. My very first prison I ever went to. And they said, come in and do a motivational uh, speak to the to the inmates talk about your life, addiction, how you turned it around. Happy to do that. So I volunteered, I went in, and I loved it. I loved it so much, I went back a second time. And then a third time. And on the third time, um, when I was in seeing the guys, um, they've got like a radio booth, mate. You know, it's like a, like well, the headphones and the microphones and, and they do a, a, a show to the whole prison, 700 inmates every day. And when I got home, I thought, I wonder how the prison would feel about all the inmates that I'm in talking to, for them to read a chapter each in my book. So I emailed the Scottish Prison Service and I put it to them and I said, how it's never been done before as far as I know. I was just thinking out loud, but how would you feel? So they went and put it to the inmates and they were all like, because all the all the profits from my book goes to homelessness in Scotland, I think that 
urged them on because it gave them a sense of giving back to society. And so they all jumped on board and said, Paul, we'd love to do it. So it was literally us, like you're saying, you, you hear the pages turning. It was literally us all sitting in the booth, opening up the book and me reading a bit. And then there's a guy from London reading a bit. There's a guy from Dundee re- reading a bit. There's a guy from the North of England, or you know, and it was these different voices. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was these all these different voices, some prison staff as well. And then when it came to uploading it, it was very difficult to put all the audio files together. And when we heard it back, there was lots of mistakes. And I knew about the mistakes before I uploaded it. And that it has to be on my head. I made the decision to upload it regardless of the mistakes that are in there. And not to have this polished, polished, overworked thing. Because it's not about, it's not about, my story isn't about being polished. My story is actually about realising and understanding that perfect doesn't exist. Mm. So why are you trying to be perfect when it doesn't even exist? So the paperback isn't perfect. I'm no perfect. Neither suspect you're no perfect. Anybody watching this isn't perfect. So my audio book didn't have to be perfect. It had a few a few flaws in there and I uploaded it. And it does come in for some criticism from people like you're saying your usual audiobook listeners yeah. are not expecting the mistakes to be yeah. in there. They're not expected to hear the pages turning. But you know, I love it and it and it's raised a lot of money for <clears throat> Excuse me. It's raised a lot of money for homelessness in Scotland, so um, I'm proud of it. And so are the guys that, so are the guys that read the guys and girls that read the chapters. There, they're proud that they've done it as well. So, yeah. so well, obviously raising money for, for for homelessness is a unbelievable cause. Also, you're in, empowering the inmates for giving them some sense of purpose and something to be proud of. You know, after presumably doing things that they're not so proud of. That's that's why they're in there. Mate, well, I just yeah, I mean, it's 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 an incredible, <clears throat> it's an incredible book, and that's why I wanted to start with it because I recommend people to go and listen to it and learn. And I, I just learned a lot about addiction, about you know, a drug addict, and what, it's just people. You're such a normal man, right? And people have an idea of what drug druggies or drug addicts are, but they're people that have maybe making the, the bad decision or a couple of bad decisions and they're just still and that's that that was the, the humanizing aspect to me very very human and very actually really relatable and i've never really touched drugs i don't really do much obviously as a boxer and athlete my entire life that's not really like my bag but so it's always been a bit never been able to really understand it but listening to your book is really humanizing and that's what i loved really relatable so I recommend everybody go and get it on Audible. I think it's nine ninety nine. Uh, heroin to hero, and that's that. That's your story, mate. That's your obviously getting back up story. We're gonna talk about some of the, the the dark times and the big climactic ending at the end. And you're still very much on your journey. And yeah, so mate, growing up as a kid, you are one of four brothers. You said you had an amazing family. Um, and again, I'm, I'm gonna listen. I've made loads of notes here. I'm, I might, I may refer. I may not. You're, you said you got amazing parents and, and, and amazing brothers. Growing up, it didn't sound that amazing. 
growing up, it sounded very difficult. And like, maybe you say amazing now because, and I'm not here to criticize your family at all. I'm not a parent yet. So I, I can imagine how hard it is. I haven't got a brother. I, I don't know how hard it is. I've got four sisters. But like, your family really came through for you, you know, later on in your life. But early on, it sounded hard. Like, they said things like, like even your parents would, would joke that like, you know, you're like you're adopted or they found you in an alleyway or in a dustbin or whatever. Like talk about that. And like you see, you see a smile now, but how hard was that growing up? Cause you always said you felt, you felt different to your three brothers and your parents. Yeah. And anybody, anybody looking at pictures of me and my brothers now, we are all bogies. We are all brothers. We all look the same. But when I was a young kid, um, And I remember them, them, them joking and laughing, saying I was found in a dustbin. And I was just like, is that true? And I'm only a, I'm only a young boy. And I'm, I already feel, I already feel like a little bit different, a bit of a disappointment. I always feel like a bit of a disappointment. Why? You said in your book that your dad was really sporty and your brother's more athletic than you. You're the second, you're the second oldest, but even quite a young age, like you weren't the fastest, you were quite, you know, quite, quite short. Why do you feel like a disappointment being so young? So, we, football, we love football. We were a football family and we played football all the time. And what happened was at primary school age, you know, there was things that happened, lots of things that happened, some traumatising, and some, they're not serious, Anthony, but they traumatised me, and they had an impact on my life. You know, when we started to get older, my younger... So, so like, my younger brother, who's three years younger than me, and my older brother's three years older, so there's a three years gap between the three of us, so it's understandable that my big brother is going to be stronger and better at football than I am. And I'm going to be stronger and better at football than my younger brother. Wrong. My younger brother was better and stronger than what I was. And my brother used to punch me all the time. Sometimes for no reasons and sometimes I asked for it. He used to feel punch me. And we would fight like cat and dog, and I would punch my younger brother. Expecting him to punch my youngest brother, but he didn't. He punched me back. So every time my big brother was punching me one side, I'm punching my other brother. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Punching him, and then he's punching me right back. So I was getting it for both ends. And then I was like, you know, and, it, and it, like school football, I would get subbed. And they would bring my little brother on, who's three years younger than me. They would replace me as a sub on the football park, and everybody would laugh. Here's Bogey, here's Bogey's wee brother, because he's crap. You know, it's just these things that stick with you. So I always felt like a bit of a... Not good enough. Oh, eh, not good enough. And then I had, the, I had the episodes as well when I was... um, I was shitting myself. Like... I didn't know what was going on. I was only a wee boy. But I was doing a number two in my pants. 
and it traumatized me because I couldn't understand why I was doing it and what was going on in my body. It was embarrassing. And there was instances in my life where family friends would come round, you know, and there'd be a, obviously a smell. And my mum would grab me and she'd pick me up and she'd pull my jammy bottoms down and she'd get a full tubby talcum powder and douse me in talcum powder because of the smell and things, things like that. When I'm a wee boy, I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with me? Why am I rubbish at football? Why am I ugly? Why am I shite in myself? Why am I pissing myself? Why am I this? Why am I that? And and it sort of stuck with me through through my whole life. And it's not serious trauma like some of the people that I, I deal with today. Everybody's trauma is different. But for me, it traumatised me as a young boy. And it sort of plagued, it plagued, you know, high school. It plagued young adult life. Um, it sort of plagued everything. And then... I took heroin for the first time and it was bliss because I didn't have these thoughts and memories um, or a care in the world. I took it for the first time and I knew I shouldn't have been taking it. I never thought I'd get addicted, but I did take it. And on taking it for the first time, mate, I realised at the age of 18, I'm still just a, a young man, still naive about things, Thinking because I'm chasing the dragon, which is smoking heroin, I'm not I'm not injecting it. I'm not going to get in trouble. And I remember the early stages of taking that drug, as it felt almost heavenly. Like I, there was nothing in my mind. There was nothing in, about worrying about what people think, worrying about who I was, who I was becoming. Nothing about anything mattered. All that mattered was being in that moment, it being on that drug, and not having a care in the world. And unfortunately for me, I fell in love with that feeling. I enjoyed that feeling so much that I went back the second, third time, fourth time, fifth time, kept taking it, kept taking it. Now, a continuous use to any addictive drug like that is going to result in a result in a result in a an addiction and and very naive that's what happened it wasn't until I tried to stop taking it I realised I can't and then my whole life just took a massive downward spiral you know where you're taking crack magic mushrooms cocaine ecstasy amphetamines pills this that and the other you're self-sabotaging, you've given up and depression depression sets in and you know with depression setting out and not realising what depression is mate because you're still a young you're, you're still a young man, I didn't know what I was crying every day and hurting myself cutting my arms with a knife marking myself, never thinking about suicide, only thinking if I can show people that I'm hurting, maybe someone will see me and maybe someone will be able to help. So I would show my friends when I would, would go out 
um, I'd wear a short sleeve t-shirt and I would put a long sleeve on when my mum and dad visited. But I'd let my friends see all my marked arms where I was all cut on my arms. And they never knew how to deal with me. They never knew what to say. They never even brought it up. And I thought, they just didn't care. But you, you wanted help. You wanted help and you were screaming for help, but you didn't know how to verbalise it because we, I mean, I'm thinking already, oh, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I'm really emotional, man. And I'm emotional because I've heard this. I've heard this from your mouth the last few days, so I know your story really well. And I've written, I've written them on my notes, like some point, like heartbreaking of an arrow up at a point we're going to go back to in a minute. But um, yeah, you obviously had all this pain and you couldn't verbalize it. You didn't know how to, because we're not really taught how to, especially, you know, you're a little bit older than me, but not a great deal older than me, but growing up, couldn't really talk, obviously in a house full of boys as well. It's not really like, like a talky-talky kind of turn of set up. It's just heartbreaking, mate. You were desperately trying to show people that you were hurting and hoping that they'd figure it out um, and, and, and save you. And that's why it's so important to talk, you know, especially when you're young and you're naive. When you say 18, you're a young man. Yeah, 18, you're a young man, but you're still a baby. Like, I didn't feel like I was a man until I was 23 years old. I, was, I mean, at the time I did, but looking back now, 18, 19, 20, I was a baby. I didn't know what I was doing. I was young, you know, with this with, with this bravado. Um, you mentioned something, mate, because and, 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 your story is so powerful and the way you tell it is so powerful and the way you read your book is there's there's long pauses. And I'm like, oh, I just want to, I just, oh, mate, it's just it's just so captivating, as, as I've said numerous times now. The first time I've written Heartbreaking in this book, you said you began drinking at 15. Didn't really like it, but you did it because your mates were doing it. And it didn't end well. All your mates take the piss out of you. You commented about your teeth a few times and the way you looked. You've said here that you were an unfortunate looking kid. And you said actually bloody ugly or fucking ugly, whatever you, however you described yourself. Um, which, by the way, man, I know it's a long time ago. I don't think that at all. But obviously that's a reflection of how you were feeling about yourself at the time. Um, you joy All your mates took the piss out of you about the way you looked. And you joined in taking the piss out of yourself because... At least when you were doing that, you were getting attention. And that's the thing you craved as a kid. You craved attention because you didn't get it at home. You didn't get it elsewhere. And the way you, I guess, felt love or felt attention, people laughed at you. So you, were, you, you acted the joke all the time. You're, you're the silly one. You're the funny one. You want to take a piss out of yourself because at least if they're laughing at you, at least you're involved. And I think that's just heartbreaking, mate. And I really feel for you. So I get it. I, I, don't, I, I can't truly get it, of course. But... I totally understand. And that's why I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast how you've humanized drug addicts because I wouldn't want to, I'd want to escape. If that's my reality, only felt like I was getting attention, taking the piss out of myself, I'd want to escape that as well. Um, well, I mean, yeah. As that thing where you are. As long as people are joking and laughing and things and you're getting that attention, it's fine. But at the end of the day, when I go home, you know, to my family home and jump into bed and I'm left with my own thoughts and thinking about the day that I've had and the only thing that's been in my in my day is maybe elements a, a bullying or me <clears throat> excuse me, taking the Mickey out myself when 
the way that I was as a young kid, for me, was horrendous. And my mum keeps sending me pictures and people message on social media. They say, Paul, I've seen a picture of you when you were 16 and I've seen a picture of you when you were 12. You weren't an ugly kid. You weren't an ugly bairn. And I'm thinking, I look at the pictures and I think, maybe I wasn't that bad. But at the time, when all my friends, all my friends have got girlfriends, right? They're all, they're all starting to go into this world of meeting girls because we're at secondary school, we're at high school, and everybody's got girlfriends. Everybody except me. And that's very, that's very traumatising. And that's reconfirming what I already think. Because now the girls are telling me that I'm ugly. <laughs> so I'm already thinking I'm ugly. My friends are telling me I'm ugly. And now I've got girls full telling me that I'm ugly. I've got buck teeth, big plukes on my skin, and this, that, and the other, whatever it is. So I'm now starting to believe what other people are telling me is the truth. And, that, you know, as a young kid, it's difficult to understand the way that I would now. You know, you believe it and you think it's true. And everything that you're doing in life is confirming what people are telling you. So I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll just be on my own. I'll never get married. I'll, I'll never do this. I'll never do that. I'll just be a, I'll just be this waster, you know. And that was the unfortunate thing with with the heroin was that it, it offered me that escape reality, and and I did that, and and I loved it. The the the, the truth is, Anthony, um, I still love heroin now. I've I, I'm almost twenty years since I last took heroin. And I know that I can never take that drug till the day I die because I love that drug so much. Is it sad? And is, it, is, that, is that a sad uh, fact knowing that you love something but you can't do it? No. No, no because of what, what the damage caused. Mm. Um, that far outweighs for me now, far outweighs what the feeling, what the physical feeling that heroin gives me. Yeah. And the mental, the mental escape gives me for the short term. Yeah. The addiction that happened after taking that drug day after day, what that done, the shame, the embarrassment, I dropped below eight stone. The doctors told me I'm going to die from malnutrition, not from heroin. Mm. He says, malnutrition will kill you long before heroin does, Paul. Yeah. Because you're not eating. So everything physically and family related and mind related, everything that addiction caused for me back then is a is a good enough reason to never ever take that drug again. Yeah. Ever. So I wanna go back to the the, 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 the taking a piss at yourself before we move on to the next section. Um actually made maybe feel guilty, like big bunch of friends as a kid. And I was like the loud, like loud, funny, cocky one, I thought, whatever, like world champion boxer, 15 years old. So I always take the piss quite a lot. And I just want to say to any of my friends out there that I I, I took jokes too far. Like at the time, of course, I didn't think I did. But some of my friends might have went home thinking, oh, that's really what I mean. I just want to apologize. You made me look inwards and go, I felt bad for taking a piss maybe a little bit too far because at the time I thought it was funny or people were laughing so I just want to hold my hands up and say 
So I never realized people went home and had those thoughts because I didn't, you know. So why would I think other people did? I was a young man. So I just want to put it out there. Uh, mate, so that first time, and he said, they did a bit of puff as a kid. You're always the anti-drugs when I have all your friends. And like, you're involved in a gang when you're a kid, 20, 30 lads kind of breaking windows, doing like silly naughty boy stuff, you know. But from my understanding, you just wanted to fit in and be one of the lads and wanted friends and you were looking for that kind of that tribal acceptance and you found the inner inner gang. Uh, you know, you didn't do anything too bad, you know, uh, some naughty stuff, nothing really to kind of go into. I want to focus on the drugs, obviously, because that's where that's 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 the first major chapter of your of your young adult life. That first day, you're in your car, you drove somewhere to get talk to me through it. Talk to me about that. Like what you were thinking were you scared were you worried smoking it injecting it the differences like as somebody who is not in that world never really been in that world talk to me about it please so head on had flooded into the area and it caught everyone off guard we had all had the same education at school pictures in needles belts spoons and heroin kills on the poster saying no to drugs and all that stuff. So heroin had come into the area and I was a boy racer and I had a car and I had a black Escort XR3. The best car of all my friends, I had that. And so they used to always come in for me every day. There's Paul coming out, ring the buzzer. There's Paul coming out, there's Paul coming out because I had the best car. Um, and what happened was they stopped doing that and we hadn't had a fallen out. So I jumped in the car and I drove down to the beach and I seen them in the car and they ignored me. Little did I know that was when I seen the first flash of tinfoil. They were in this crammed Ford Fiesta um, and they were sitting chasing the dragon. But I didn't want to be on my own. So I was in my car on my own and they were all in this tiny fiesta all crammed into it. I asked one of my friends what it was and that's when I first, when they said chase the dragon, I thought, what's that? Because it sounds ridiculous, chasing the dragon. And they said, heroin. And I said, shut up. There's no way all my pals that I grew up with no other families, mums and dads and brothers and sisters, I kind them all. There's no way they're sitting in there taking heroin. And they were. But I didn't want to be on my own. So I said to my friend, go back in the car and tell them they can come in my car and they can take the heroin in my car. I'm not touching it. So they started filtering into my car. I used to go to the heroin dealer, park up outside around the corner. He would go away, get the heroin come back in the car, they'd go to the beach, they would sit in the back and they would chase the dragon, take the hair on and get out their faces. And that's smoking it, right? Chasing the dragon means that's smoking. Sm yeah, so that that's that's smoking it. And that went on for a few weeks. And then the very first time I ever tried it, so you have that peer pressure which followed me for a young, young boy um, taking alcohol, cannabis, if you didn't do it, you're going to get bullied for not doing it, which was a thing. So I didn't want to be bullied. I wanted to fit in. 
with the heroin, um, I had an argument with my mum about car insurance and I left the house, slammed the door, screaming and shouting at my mum, being disrespectful about money for car insurance. I jumped in the car, I drove all the way down to the beach and I was like, fuck it, do you know what? I was that angry and pissed off. Every day they were offering me, Anthony, have it, Paul, try it. And I was like, smells disgusting. No thanks, no thanks, no thanks. And I never, ever thought I would try it. And that day, I was still so angry. I said, right, what do I do? And they showed me how to do it. And I took my first hit. And 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 the rest is history. It was, it was horrible, that anger. It? it was disgusting and horrible. You said you didn't enjoy it. Like a, like, a, like, a, no. like a dead fish, you said this smells like. It, is, it smells smells like rotten fish, and actually, physically, physically, what happened was, um, I think I went green. I started to shake, and I started to sweat in places that I did not know you could sweat. Right, I just never knew. I remember getting out of the car lying on the promenade, on the concrete, on my back, and my smoke, I was soaking, absolutely drenched in sweat, and I felt sick, like I wanted to vomit, kept feeling like I was wanting to vomit, and I just lay there, and it was bliss, mentally, because there wasn't any of these car insurance worries, arguing with my mum worries, being ugly worries, not having enough money worries, not being attract, not being a, not having a girlfriend worries, no this shiting myself when I was wee worries, um, getting bullied when I was at school worries, um, what's happening in the future worries, none of that mattered, and although physically it, it, it was horrific, mentally it, it, it wasn't, it was nice. You finally felt it, at it peace. Was, it sounds like you finally felt was. peace and. Mm. Yeah, and that piece and that piece, but that piece doesn't last, mate. How long? Did, that was the thing. How long would one hit last? Uh, you know, you see, so hours. I mean, early on, you know, it's obviously stronger because you build up tolerance to, to to all these kinds of drugs. But early on, you know, you would take one hit, and hours later, I'm still wasted. I'm still drooling. You know, I'm still drooling out the side of my mouth, and because I'm so relaxed that my muscles just give way on my face and then they just start slavering and I, I'm conscious. I'm lying there with my eyes closed. I can hear people talking. I can feel dribbles coming down my chin but I didn't want to move because I'm in that sort of coma-like state where it's just bliss and I didn't want to wake myself up so I'm just lying there and it, and you know, and, and it just lasted and then you know, I'd go home I jump into bed, go to sleep and things, and then the next again day and night, we're gonna go and get it again. I'd go and get it the second time, and the same thing would happen. I feel like I'm wanting to vomit. The sweating would start. So, um, Paul, so after when you went home that night, you got in bed, and hopefully, you know, what are your immediate thoughts? In that, do you feel like, oh, I like that. That was that was nice. Or do you feel like Oh, I've tried it once. I don't want to do it again. Did you know you're done? Did you feel bad? Did you feel guilty? Just what the mindset? Because there's a way, like 
like you said earlier, you mentioned earlier, you go home, you get in your bed, and then you're left just you and your thoughts, and it's quiet or it's noisy, whatever. What what are the voices saying in your head? I liked it. Liked it. And there was no remorse, and there was no guilt. I knew it was heroin. There was nothing there like that. I had no, I had no guilt or ill feel like anything negative like about what my family, what my mum and dad would think, what my brothers and people that love me would think. Nothing. I, I, it was very, um, a very selfish mindset. I'm lying there and I'm realizing I've just taken heroin, and I loved it, but it's okay because I'll never get addicted. Yeah. Why? Why do you oh. think you wouldn't get addicted? Why do you? Because obviously, you know the posters: heroin kills. Don't do drugs. People will get addicted. Why did you think they can get addicted, but I'm not going to get addicted? Why did you think it was different? I just thought that my friends. Wouldn't they be? They wouldn't they be chasing the dragon. Even back then, I didn't know what that was. Um, you know, it's just smoking. It's just smoke. You kind of get addicted to to heroin like that. I'll, I'm going to be able to stop whenever I want, and so will all my friends. We can all stop when we want because it's not very serious. Because there isn't. I'll never. I'll never inject heroin, and I was at that for day one. Never ever do that, and if my friends what's start injecting, what's the difference? Why would you never inject but smoke it? Because heroin kills if you inject, because that's what the poster tells tells you with the picture of the needle and the spoon and the belt. And if you've seen films like Train Spotting and and you see you see educational videos with, with, with revolving heroin, and in society today, mate, often makes the assumption heroin oh he must be sticking needles into his groin then that's what society has that's the that's what that i think yeah that, that, that's, that's that's my perspective you know you, you yeah. get under and the toenail and stuff you know you're on your dick like you've looked for a vein that's that's my thoughts of heroin but that's not that's yeah, not and that was, that's not the full truth it's not the full truth and that was why we were all extremely naive we used to joke about it in the car on the way you get heroin, we were joking and laughing. Ah, uh, Paul, you'll get addicted. And I was like, shut up, idiot. You'll get addicted. It would be a joking thing, you know? And then the, the, the crazy thing is, they're no longer here. They died as a direct result of their drug addiction, you know? And it's, and it's that now, you know, I'm 44. I'm 44 years old, and when I think back in memories, and I talk about, which I do a lot in podcasts and or interviews and things, I talk about a life past, talk about the beach, the cramped fiesta. Most of that car is now alive today. And how the addiction had taken hold of these decent, big-hearted, doing-it-for-you guys that I grew up with. And it's, it's, it's hard because I'm not saying that all drug addicts are saints. All I'm saying is not all addicts are bad people, and certainly 
through my experience, not all heroin addicts are bad people. We're all different and we're all individual. And, and some of these... And, and, and they're people. Whether they're good, bad or indifferent, they're people. They're still people with parents, brothers, sisters, children, feelings and emotions and they're people. Mm. Yeah, and this is what society has a hard time understanding, I think. And this is why I do my interviews and stuff. And what you what you were talking about right at the start about humanizing, like for me, my story, and you know, I'm just one. I'm just a normal guy, you know, that was fortunate enough, you know, to to turn that around and and become a soldier and all that sort of good stuff. But there's millions of people out there right now that are stuck in a place because they didn't think that they would get addicted or they think they thought they would be able to stop the you know and the harsh reality is the drugs are amazing and there's a reason why we have so many addicts all over the globe is you know whether it's heroin cocaine crack um meth whatever it is there is a reason why there's millions and millions of people drawn to taking those drugs because they are mind-altering drugs. Cannabis is a mind-altering drug. Alcohol, mind-altering drug. Alcohol is the most destructive drug in the world and it's legal. Crazy, but you know, it's that whole heroin is or people have that that assumption, but it's, it is about, for me, it is about um, treat everybody as an individual. You know, and then they make the assumptions on people that everybody else does. Get to get to know somebody's backstory. There's there's things that I hear, Anthony, on on a daily basis from people that I help. They always say I can't tell you the stories. Um, even backstage, I couldn't tell you because it's private and confidential. How many of these people? And we we talk we talked about um my trauma which isn't very serious. It was to me at the time, but as far as childhood trauma goes and trauma in general goes, I hear some horrific stories from people and and I always say to people, no wonder that person is a heroin addict because I understand why they would want to hide away from reality. If my reality was as horrific and they've been through such a horrific time as what these people have, then I can understand why heroin would be their best friend like it was mine. I understand that. And obviously I still try and help them to 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 break the addiction, to break away. But it's, it's extremely difficult mm. to convince people, you know? I hate um, people, some I really hate, People say, like, obviously, you see a lot of homelessness on the streets. Uh, there's a lot here in the US. Obviously, there's a lot in London where, I'm, where I am when I'm when I'm back in England. And uh, a lot of homelessness. And people, a, a couple of times, actually, <clears throat> people will say, I have to give homeless people money because I just think poor bugger. Poor buggers. I just think it's, you know, whether it helps or not, I don't know. But I just, I struggle to see a homeless person step over them because ultimately, they're still people. And if that is me, 
and it doesn't take a lot. Like, you know, I had a very good upbringing. Don't get me, it was, it was difficult in parts, but I had a loving mum and four amazing sisters and that got me through the, 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 the tough times of my upbringing. And then somebody said to me twice, actually, different people, oh, don't give them money, they'll just go and buy drugs. And I thought, yeah, and so would I probably. So would I. Like if I if I was lying on the street in London in February and it's cold, wet, miserable, and people looked over me and stepped over me like I didn't exist, I'd want to I'd want to take my mind away. I'd want to like be high all the time and just that that bliss, as you mentioned earlier. Because no, who's helping? You know, and I, you should never judge people because, like you said, you have no idea the shit that people go through and some of the traumas you you know you had a relatively comparatively good upbringing with two parents that obviously loved you, restrict and stuff, said some things, but still obviously loved you. Some And, and also homelessness, right? But like, if I was a 14-year-old girl getting molested by my stepdad, I'm running away, right? And that's why a lot of people end up homeless. Not because they're lazy or don't want to get a job or, or whatever some people think, or they're druggies or this. Like, people should not judge so quickly, you know, because what would they do in a similar situation? It doesn't take a lot, does it? As you'll know, the stats way better than me. It doesn't take a lot of something like, everyone's maybe what six months from being homeless or something like you'll know better than me but like it's not too far for anybody you know and um yeah people should be a bit kinder so if you take one thing away from this this podcast i'm sure you'll take more because this is a bit, tiny tiny bit now some of you are quite a homeless person whether you give them money or don't or give them food or don't at least respect them as people you have no idea what led them to be there i just wanted to say that and secondly mate and um, mentioned about that car, like your 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 escort, and like most of the cars not there anymore. They they died because of the addiction. Like, can you explain to me? And this might be difficult to talk about. I don't know um, how they died, why they died. Like, what what was it that killed them? Was it the pursuit of money for drugs? Was it the actual drug itself? Was it just the the lifestyle that happens when you become addicted to drugs? Yeah, lifestyle. Um... It is one of those unfortunate things where being an addict and chasing that hit all the time and, and abusing drugs all the time, you are running a gauntlet every single day. And it's a gauntlet that you're more than happy to run because you are wanting that hit. You want to feel that bliss, that escape through reality. And, you know, like overdosing and, you know, and just physical um yeah physical problems is a direct result of a continuing a continuous use and abuse of drugs not always just heroin tablets other medications um when you take cocktails of prescription drugs you are running the risk of overdose and you don't even know it and sometimes, mate, to be truthful, you didn't care, you know. And I've been in many instances myself when I've swallowed maybe 20 or 30 tablets. And 15 minutes later, when I can feel the tablets kicking in, I've got a fright. And I thought, have I taken too many? Because I feel dizzy. And I feel like things are going to black out. And I've not felt this sensation before. And I'm shaking. And what's wrong? Have I taken too many? And you know, and I, and I and I'll and I'll and I'll pass out and I'll wake up, and then you just go on about the following day. It's the same. You just you're just chasing 
You're just chasing those hits. That, that, and these that's a terrifying sounds terrifying like when you're shaking before you pass out. And obviously when people OD, they pass out and they never wake up. Were you scared that would happen to you? Or when you had that that that, that fright, as you said, before you did pass out, were you ever scared that next time you might not wake up from passing out? Didn't care. I didn't care, mate. I, if, if I if I overdosed and died, then so be it. And as horrible as, horrible as that sounds, um, I never, I was so selfish. I had become so selfish and self-absorbed in my own life, my own struggles, um, that I, I wouldn't give my family a second thought at that time. Heroin's going to kill me eventually tomorrow or in two weeks, maybe next month, maybe next year, but it's going to get me and I'm, I'm going to die because... So I'd given up on life. So I just abused any drug that I could get my hand on. Any. It would not matter what it was. I would just swallow tablets like they were going out of fashion. Um, but when I had... When I had that time in my life where... I decided that I'm not going to. I'm not going to stop cutting my arms as I cry for help. I'm actually going to commit suicide. Uh, I remember the feeling. Oh, I sorry, like the, the fireworks. fireworks! Fucking hell! <laughs> for those people, for those people that can't, <laughs> down with the thumbs. Now let's add some. Let's add some humor now. For those people that can't, that listen to this, not watching it. Uh, Paul just, you know, he's talking about about to, he decided to kill himself, rubbing his hands together, and then double thumbs up. And as you mentioned at the beginning, <laughs> double thumbs up. It becomes Guy Fawkes night <laughs> in the in the Paul household, and his background was, was fireworks, which was, um, mate, I've got a big lump in my throat. It's probably it's probably better than. I'm glad that happened because I was going to get a bit choked up. But uh, so mate, continue, please. So it's like. I had played around with the idea, never contemplating or thinking about it, I would actually do it. I'd had family members that had committed suicide and it had destroyed my family. I'd seen it firsthand and I didn't want to do that to my mum and dad, right? So when I was marking myself, that seemed okay. I didn't feel too bad about it. I remember this feeling that I got it's not a game anymore. It's not a cry for help. I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of the evil things that I've seen human beings doing to other human beings. I'm tired of feeling like this junky, um, spat on, talked about, ugly piece of shit. I'm tired of promising my mum and dad that I'll stop taking heroin and never being able to do it. I'm tired of being a disappointment to everybody in my whole life. I'm just tired. And do you know what? This, you know, if I jump off a bridge, I probably survive. If I put a belt around my neck, the the bulb would probably, the, the leak would come out the ceiling and I'd survive. Tablets, copious amounts of paracetamol, 20, 30, 40, some cocodamols, some tramadols, just got a big ball and just swallow the whole lot. You'll know wake up. And guess what? 
They're not being any pain. There'll be nothing. I'm, a, I'm an atheist. I'm not a religious man. So I didn't know about afterlife and like I was taught through, through childhood and I understand all that. For me, I didn't, I think when the lights go out, it just goes black and there's nothing. You know, if there's a heaven and, a, and, a, and there's a hell, then I'm going to be going to hell, rest assured with that. So I, in my mind, I'm thinking it's just going to go black, but you're not going to be in any pain. So it's a great idea, let's do it. So I started putting and they made not, you know, started to put in uh, how I was gonna do it, when I was gonna do it. Um and then I'm sitting listening to REM on the hi-fi, you know? And it's and it's a crazy thing, automatic for the people. One of the best albums ever written by one of the best rock bands ever. And at least they listen to out of time and automatic for the people every day. And everybody hurts was one of those songs growing up. It sounds like a sad song. Always made me emotional to listen to it, even as a wee boy. Put the album in. I'm sitting on my own in my flat. Tonight's the night. Feel it. Right, it's now. So I'm sitting. I start popping the pills from the blister packs into the bowl. I'm sitting popping all these tablets. And I start to fill this bowl up. I get a pint of water. And I start crying. Crying. And it's, see, I remember the tears just running down. And I'm thinking about my family. And it's no stopping me. I'm thinking about all my family that love me and how much I'm going to miss them. And it isn't stopping me. I'm still popping them. And I'm getting myself more and more worked up. More and more worked up. And then the beginning of everybody else on the hi-fi starts. And that's it. Goodbye. I've decided that song, perfect. Drug overdose, perfect. Sitting there. And then sitting listening to everybody hurts. And this is the craziest thing. This is the truth, mate. People think this is maybe bullshit. Michael Stipe, the lyrics of that song, hold on. Hold on. I think it's verse three in the song. I'm not going to sing because I can't sing. Hold on, hold on. The, I had the speaker mixed in my ear and I heard Michael Stipe's voice. Michael Stipe knew that I was about to commit suicide. And he was singing that song specifically to me, telling me not to throw my hand. He says, don't throw your hand, hold on. He was singing it to me. He knew what I was about to do and I heard him. And I've sent Michael Stipe the book, and I've sent R.E.M. the book over in America, and he's received it. Um, he said, I've got a cool story, because he's seen a Sun newspaper clip. He says, oh, cool story. But I've never got to contact him about how much an impact that he had in that moment in my life. And I woke up, and this is the crazy thing, I had a blue bowl. I woke up that next day morning, and the, and the tablets were scattered all over the rug and all over the floor. And I woke up on the rug and I lifted my head up. What the fuck are you doing? What the fuck was that? Get help. You're getting help now and you're going to take the help and stop just doing that so your mum and dad are happy. I'll see a drug counsellor bullshit. Get help. Because last night, what you nearly done 
and what you were what you were close to doing last night is not on, and that's gonna be a selfish prick, and do that. Get help. So, to that moment, that was me. I I picked myself up. I was under eight stone, black circle skeleton, um, struggling with depression and suicide thought and all that. And I and I went and 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 got to help me and um I was able to save myself. Other people were able to play a part in saving me, teaching me about the mind, teaching me about who Paul Bogey is, why Paul Bogey loved drugs, why Paul Bogey felt um inadequate, why Paul you know, and learnt about myself and being able to work through the the hang ups and the trauma and work through everything. And ultimately the course that I done through Cyrenians, which is a homeless charity in Edinburgh. An amazing guy um, from across the pond, Newry, Lou Tice, sadly is no longer with us. Pacific Institute, we've done a course about the power of the mind. What? Shut up. I'm not going on that. I'm a smackhead. Why am I going to go on about learn about the power of the mind? I'm not going. Right? That was the mentality for a while. I thought, well, there's nothing to lose. Let's just try it. But you're going to end up dead. So it was my self-talking and my, my own mind. So I went, sitting listening to this American psychologist telling me about how the the subconscious mind works. The conscious. The creative subconscious. The, the self-talk. The way that I talk to myself where... If I am calling myself in the mirror every single day, ugly. Every single day, I'm beating myself up for things, bad choices that I've done. Every single day, I'm putting myself down. Is it any wonder that I turn to drugs and feel the way that I do? You have to change that. And he said, I have the power to be able to change my way of thinking. That's what it was. So it was nothing to do with addiction, mate. Numbers and direction wasn't even mentioned in the whole course for the whole month. It wasn't mentioned once. It was all just about the power of the mind, the way the mind works. And once I was taught, I was able to apply the things that I was taught to my addiction problems and my mental health problems and my suicide problems and start to make sense of it and, and start to fix myself and build myself up, you know? And like almost 20 years ago, I went in the I went in the mirror, um, a skinny little rat I am man, skin and bone. I went into the mirror and I remember thinking, you know, thank you, Lou Tice. I put my nose in the mirror, said, Don't fucking ask for heroin ever again, because you're never getting it. And I looked straight in my eyes. Looked straight in my eyes in the mirror and swore and got angry. Said, Don't fucking ask. And when I done it, I got the biggest fucking goosebumps on my whole body. And I knew, as crazy as that sounded back then, or 18 years ago, or 17 years ago, people would doubt me. Say, I ah, relapses is just around the corner. You'll take, you'll end up taking the drugs again. Um, I knew. I'll never touch that drug again. And 19, 19 and a half years, I, I believe I deserve the right to say, that I'll not touch that drug again. Even though people say, you can't say that, you can't say that, you didn't know what will happen tomorrow, Paul. I understand that. For me, you know, 
I've been through the ringer, breaking my back and crushing my spine, being, you know, medically discharged for the army and all that pish. If I was ever going to relapse and go back to that drug, I would have done it when I was struggling mentally through that. I know I'm never doing it. And like we spoke about earlier, my family, people that love me, people that I love is a good enough reason. It's the only reason that I need, that I need as well as the, 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 the love that I've got for myself and the pride that I've got in what I've done and who I've become. All these things mount up into a big ball a big ball of pride, something that I never thought I'd have in my life, ever. And I've now got this big ball of pride, and if need can break this ball of pride, it's mine. I've earned it. So I do openly talk about my drug use and say things like that that may offend people. But, you know, and I always say when I try to educate people about, again, how, how, Paul, how did you get off? How did you stop? How did you stay off? And I always say to people, listen, you can do your rehab programs. You can do your 12 steps programs. You can turn to God. If it works for you, do it. Do whatever it takes. For me, I've done none of those things. I learned about the mind. Thanks to Lou Tice, I learned about the mind. I learned about who I was and I applied it to all the other crap in my life and it worked. So I am the, that special man, right? That is, can only happen for me. So there's all these other heroin addicts out there that are struggling like what I was. Good people that are just stuck, that I want to try and help these people and reach out to these people and say, look, if 12 steps isn't working for you or rehab centres isn't working for you and you keep relapsing and or uh, turning into religion isn't working for you, keep looking. Keep looking and try something else. Try alternatives. Try it the way I've done. Because you've no going in, you've nothing to lose, and everything again. How long, with that being said, with that moment of clarity for you in the mirror, how long does it take to kick a habit? Is it in a moment, like when you stood in the mirror, or is it the following weeks and months and years of recovery? Or when do you kick that habit? When are you cured, quote unquote? For me personally, and you're asking me a direct question about my life. Yeah, it was there and then. Now there will be people in this world that run recovery centres that have other addictions that will say that's bullshit. That's bullshit. I am going to die a recovering heroin addict. I'll be a recovering heroin addict for my whole life. I know that now, and I I've embraced it. Um, I knew at that split moment in my life that I would break away. Physically, I had a lot of work to do. I had cold turkey to go through. I had to um, start eating. I had to start exercising. I had to start looking after myself to, to save myself from what the doctors were warning me about, which is the damage that the malnourishment was doing. So I had to fix myself, and, and cold turkey is hell on earth. I was going to say, can you talk about it, that, mate? For those who never... Had to go cold turkey. What is that like? You say you said in your book, so, "Hell on Earth." So, talk to me about the hell, the depths of hell. So it's like like so many times I've relapsed, but prior to the course, before I went on this course about the mind, I'd relapsed. I'd maybe two days into cold turkey and I'd fail, 
and I'd go back and get heroin. And it happened time and time again. And and I really struggled in those moments mentally, as well as physically, but more mentally. So physically, you have like um, severe stomach cramps, severe migraines, shivering. Everything runs. The eyes run, the nose runs, the mouth runs. Um, everything's just stream. Everything just shuts down because you're depriving your body from the medicine, and your body needs the medicine now to 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 function. So you're depriving it, and you're just sweating, and it's a it's a very horrific place to be. And at the times, you know, it's it's, it's easy just to as Give me the medicine. I can't cope with a day, two days, a few days, a week. And it is, it is horrible. And I would never wish it on my worst enemy. It's just a horrible, horrible place to be. And there's a reason why so many people do not achieve um, to even get into recovery. Because that's how bad it is. It's, I, to put it into words is impossible, mate. Um, it's physically and mentally. But what happened was, on the final time, 19 and a half years ago, having been through those episodes of cold turkey, when I looked in the mirror and said, don't ask for heroin ever again, and I knew I'm never going to touch that drug again, I couldn't tell anyone, because I told my family a dozen times before, nobody was going to believe me. When I sat cold turkey in for that week, the cramps, the shivers, the restlessness, the sweating, everything just, my body shutting down. I was just sitting rock. I'm going to get a car. I'm going to get a girlfriend. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to... I'm going to start playing football again. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. All I need to do is just get this physical withdrawal out of the way. And as soon as I'm able enough physically to get myself out there and get better, and I'm going to start doing things. I'm going to look after myself. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to, you know, and that, through that whole, on the final time, it was still horrible. Physically, mate, it was still horrible. But mentally, because my mind was so strong, and I realised what I had to do, once I took away the option of ever taking heroin again, Ever, it became easier. It became something that I knew I was going to see through. And as the weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, and I get into recovery, and I did get a job, and I did get a car back, and I did do all these things. I got a flat, and I'd done all these things. And I started all these dreams that I'd had on the couch going cold turkey. I had all these dreams, and I started putting them into fruition, and they started coming true. And I thought, oh, you know, what other things do you want to do with your life, Paul? What mad things can you do to prove to the world that you've changed? Oh, oh, let's become a soldier, you dafty. Aye, go and be a soldier. And I was like, who says I can't? Who says I can't be a soldier? Everybody. Everybody laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Paul Bogey, junkie, smackhead, the guy from Edinburgh. Aye, going to be a soldier. He's like he's 30, he's 30 years old nearly. He's going to be a soldier. 
But what I'd learnt about in this course was about turning negatives into positives. So the more I hear people talking about me and people laughing in my face about being a soldier, some of them family. All my family laughed. Parents included. I'm going to be a soldier. Aye, good one. I used that negative energy that they were feeding me and society was feeding me. I used it and I thought, I'm going to prove these people wrong and it made me feel nice. And I was starting to get off on the feeling that it proving them wrong. Like, I've changed. Like, I'm not the same Paul Bogey that was that was down and out that he is. No, I've, I've changed and I'm going to prove it. So I, I, I applied to that to be, become a, a soldier. And I told them about the heroin. And I told them when I was honest all the way through. And because of my training, you know, I, there was a void. There was a void that heroin filled in my life. I had to replace the void. So I found running. Running was the thing. And then and mountain biking, physical fitness, lifting weights, box, boxing. I found boxing and then I didn't like being punched. I found that out the hard way, right? So I'm never, no your level anyway. But what I found was when I was in the gym and doing my treadmill and lifting weights and I went to um, the sports shop and bought wraps and mitts. They were only five or six pounds. Can I afford it? I bought them, put them in my gym bag, waited until the gym was quiet and went in. And just got myself put a CD on. It was Faithless, the band Faithless. We come, we we come one. And I blasted it up. It was like a dance studio. And it was a, and I was like, and the Rocky Rocky um, soundtracks as well. Um, I the Tiger and stuff. And I would hear the the, the big subwoofer turned it up. I knew the boy that was running the gym. He was like, crack on, Paul. It's fine. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just start just start hitting this heavy bag, and I was just pounding it, pounding it, pounding it. It's finished, and I was like, "That actually feels amazing." I didn't feel angry. Yeah, like I didn't feel like I've released this this anger, and I and in society, I just become a better person, a nicer person, and every day go back and just pounding the bag, pounding the bag, and as you know, the training, you know, the running and the weights and everything, you do it every day. I become addicted to physical fitness. Before I knew it. Like a, I like I'm like I'm built like a British house. And I'm like in the gym in the mirror. Well, what the what the fuck? Look at the fucking size of my arms. Like I've got lines coming to here, lines there, and lines there. And I'm like, yeah. And I've become a little bit vain, right? And this is all new to me, right? But I'm becoming this vain. Girls are starting to pay Mate, attention. That's called, that's, that's called finally for the first yeah. time in your life having self respect. Having self respect. Yeah. That's what it is. And, and it was like. You know, because because of that, when it when it came to joining the army so late on, mate, these 17, 18 year old whippersnappers, right? That I was scared of. Oh, they'll run rings around me. I fucking run rings around all of them. And some of the staff. When I got to basic training, like, you know, you're going out and you're doing your runs, doing your pull ups, doing your push ups and all that. And I was just smashing them out. Like, you know, doing a hundred and one go, two minutes, best effort, go. And I would just be there pushing them up. What's everybody go? 34, 56, 72 staff, 84 staff, bogey, 102 staff. And everybody's like, 
Shut the fuck up. Bogey looking up. That old bastard is <laughs> thirty. It's thirty. And we're going for the run. You know, we're going for the runs and the weighted tabs and stuff. And it was like I'd become because of that that addictive personality that I've got. That um I just loved it. And I loved the challenge uh, going up against other soldiers and beating them. And it made me feel good and it made me have that that feeling of self worth. You know, like I've been lacking my whole life and that's what it gave me and it gave me that, that pride and um that's made me into the man I am today. The army had a big part in moulding me and to the person that I am. Um but I it's, it's pretty manic. It's been a manic life, but it's like I'm not finished. No, mate, no, no you've I'm got you've worse. got so much life left to live. You've got so much life left to live. Now, great, listen, obviously what you went through is difficult and we're going to jump into, there's there's more time. I'm not cutting this now. There's more time. I want to hear about some of the more amazing moments in your life. Because um, you know, we, we focus on some of the, the hard times and we always finish only up because hope, H-O-P-E, hope, hold on, pain ends. Hold on, pain ends, both physical and mental. Hold on. Like you said, those words, L-A-M, they're speaking to you in your ear just for you. You feel like they're talking just for you. Hold on pain ends just stick in stay in the fight have your hands up and stay in the fight uh mate this is this is such powerful stuff i i, I love it um it's you know hearing like of your, your face obviously you can't see you right now i can see you and your your face you've you've had the whole myriad of emotions in your face today and when you were talking just now you're doing the arms you're doing the boxing you look so happy and you just look such like the, one of the good things about what you went through, it was so early in your life, you recovered, and you've got you've already lived almost twenty years, almost twenty years like of heroin, mate. I, you know, well, massive, massive congratulations and big. There, there, oh, there, there's the fireworks. There they are. There, there's the fireworks getting in there, son. And you've still got so yeah. much more life left to live, like so many more people to, to be helped. And I, I don't know how I can, mate, but I'm going to help you every step of the way. And you've got a massive supporter in me, uh, for sure. Something I want to talk and I mentioned, like, I think you do this. I'm pretty sure you do. You wear, like, uh, the question is this. Do you ever feel shame in, you mentioned that you went into the army and you told them about your addiction to heroin and, and the depths that you sunk to? And maybe I don't know. I don't. I can't see your arms. Have you got scars on on your arms? Uh, so I, I mean this literally and metaphorically. Do you ever feel shame in in? You don't seem like you feel shame wearing your scars. You know, both talking about what you've been through and maybe the the the, the physical scars you share. Do you feel any shame about where you've been in your life, or are you? Do you own it? Have you owned it now? You feel like you're very proud of it, actually. Yeah. Uh, no, um, shame every day. Oh, you do have every do single, you feel shame? Uh, every single day. And that's, I'll die with that. And, and that is because, because of what I've done to my mum and dad for those seven years, that, 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 and my brothers as well, but more my mum and dad. And I can't turn back the clock and undo what I put them through. And my mum and dad are my mum and dad were proud of me massively when I got off heroin and I got a job and I got a car. And then they were massively proud of me 
when I joined the army and they came down they came down to visit me in my in my in the bar. There's a smile again. Oh. There's a smile again. I right. can't keep seeing that smile. Right. Right. <laughs> right. They were so proud. Mm. And they're, they're, they're even more proud of me now because of what I'm doing. Um and they allowed me to to carry that shame well. Um because they are so proud. I can't ever I can't ever get rid of that shame. Nor nor do I want to. It's who I am, it's part of bad choices that I made. But I've learned to own it. And if I can if I can do good with the shame that I feel in my heart for bad choices that I've made, and I can help other people in life and this planet that we're living on, and I can do something to help one person through that shame that I carry, then then that's what I'm trying to do. But the shame's there every day. That is who I am, and and I'm never going to change it. So I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to change it because that's a waste of time. That's time. Time's precious. I'm be, be I would be better putting that time to good use, accepting that I've got the shame and the embarrassment and all the negative things that I put my family through, and do something good and positive, turn that negative into a positive again. And that's and that's what I just try and do. But the shame will never, you know, the shame will never go, ever. And that's just life. I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm not a counselor. Um, I don't think you should feel shame. Don't get me wrong. I feel ashamed for what. Okay, this, this this is obviously personal to you. I don't know. I don't think you should be ashamed of 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 your past. We all have one. I've done things that I regret. I've done things that at the time I wish I didn't do, but I did it, you know. Um, I can't carry that around me the rest of my life because they'll make me a bad person, a sad person. I think we all, you know, we're, we we get one go at this. We've got to live at the best, live our lives the best way we can. We deserve to be happy. We deserve to smile and, and, and have fun more than feeling sad. And I don't think you should feel shame. I think you should be, I if I were you, I'd feel the past is gone. You can't do anything about it. I feel nothing but immense pride for where you are now compared to where you could have been. You could have easily been one of those guys in the car that aren't here anymore. You didn't. And that takes pride, mate. That, that takes strength of strength of character to kind of like to fight out of that desperation that you were in. Mate, like, don't get me wrong. As I said, these are your feelings, these are your experiences. No one can tell you how to feel. But personally, I think you should feel the, the pride that you should feel way outweighs the, the the shame that you you may still you obviously do still feel so um yeah you are an incredible incredible human mate you really are i would have liked to have spoke more about your army although i do want to touch there, there's two there's two points i want to i want to talk about and then anything else that you want to talk about but i've had an amazing conversation uh today point one is again going from the depth that you sunk to to uh, you know, being a guard, a royal guard at a Windsor Castle. Talk to me about that. You know, you said your your parents are sh- proud of you for, for joining the army and just getting through the basic training and and go, doing the things you did. And they stand outside Her Majesty's you no know, castle guarding her. Like, tell me about that, mate. Because for me, people who know me, I never got the chance to go in the army. I wanted to go in the army. Boxing always took precedent. I never could do it. 
Uh, I genuinely thought at 30 years old when I retired from boxing, I might, I, I might do a poor bogey and go in the army at 30. In the end, I was too accustomed to like, I was too accustomed to, to, to not get shouted at anymore after years being shouted at by my boxing coaches. But talk to me about that, mate. Like talk about, you know, guarding the queen, our uh, residents. Talk to me about that. Uh, yeah, it was just a, it was a strange thing. You know, you go into basic training to be a guardsman and you're not only doing the green life, filling yourself, um, you know, up with um, weapon drills, exercises, sleep deprivation and all that stuff. The red life with being a guardsman is donning this uniform, toy soldier uniform that you've seen growing up, you know, bearskin. And then to be sent down to London, I was down in London for nine months. Um, Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Tower of London, and St James's Palace. It's a very strange feeling, especially for probably for most people, but for somebody like me that lived the life that they'd lived. To five years after, it's only five years. It's like it was it didn't even feel that long ago that I was that down and out person. Then five years later, to be standing outside Buckingham Palace, presenting arms to the Queen as she leaves, and it's like, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on? Like, is am I dreaming? Because I don't think this shit's real. I'm pinching myself. I'm thinking, like, through basic training, it was a one day at a time. Just one day. Just put your best effort in. And tomorrow, put your best effort in. Then you think about what's going to happen. I'm glad you said that, Paul, because I've had, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. So I, I have different I have different uh, sayings for this. I had a person on recently, and she said about how, how do you eat an elephant one bit at a time? We often talk about uh, the staircase. You haven't got to see the top of the staircase. You just have to see that first step, the next step. And like you said, one day at a time. That's how... You become successful, I guess, in recovery, I guess, in, in, in boxing, and in anything is one step at a time. When you look too far forwards, you get anxious, you get panicky, you start to worry. But we can all see one step. You, we can all see a step ahead of us. Sorry, Matt, you, you carry on. I just wanted to in, insert my little thing there. No, good. We should give that a double thumbs yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, it's more fireworks. Come on. on. It's Burns yeah, Night. Yeah. It's Burns Night here on the Getting Back Up podcast. Yeah. <laughs> You're exactly right. And I think that's, as human beings, that's what we do. We, we often um, burden ourselves. We look at the bigger picture, and it gives us the fear and the anxiety, which is enough to stop us even trying. Um, so through the army, you know, I have struggled, not physically, um, but I struggled learning how to shoot a rifle, strip a rifle, clean a rifle. I struggled how to um, march. <laughs> you know, all these new things that people, other people, seem to find easy. Um, I've struggled. I still kick their ass on anything physical, but I struggled to do those same things. So it was just one day after another and just and just learning. And then when it got to the end of basic training, all the family come down for Edinburgh to visit me and march uh, the parade at the end. It was strange because the sergeant major comes out and he addresses all the family about your sons. I've, I've endured one of the most difficult courses, blah, 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 and gives it all the big spiel about being a guardsman. 
I think he's fucking talking about me. I'm sitting there with all my other guardsmen pals. Well, that was when we went from trainee guardsmen to fully fledged guardsmen. So we got to drop the trainee bit. All right. He's fucking talking about me. He's fucking talking about me. Like, okay. And it's like, now your sons are going to be sent down to London to do ceremonial duties. Um, a great honour and a privilege. Fucking talking about me. I'm going like, seven days, I'm going to be in London. I've never been in London in my life. I've never been inside fucking Edinburgh. Like, and now I'm going to do London, you know? And it's just like, and then just being down there and having the respect, this is the respect for the police officers. Like, it was strange for me. I had all these police officers down there, even when if I wasn't in uniform. It's like they knew I was a guardsman because of the way I carried myself. Hello, sir. That policeman just called me, sir. How are you doing? How, how, how are you doing? Are you good? Blah, blah, blah. I, I'm good, mate. Aye, how are you? I good and sitting chin wag with them and that. Like, back in Edinburgh, like, the, I'm running away from the bad boys. Like, you know, I'm running. I'm running jumping fences to get away. And then in London, my, my whole life had just become as an element of respect. Um, and then, you know, I loved, I loved the, the ceremonial duties. It was just, uh, I'd done, I'll, I'll say this quickly because we're getting on for time, right? Um, I'd done the ceremony of the keys in the town of London. Like, what a great honour. It's a seven-year-old tradition. And it's where, um, if you didn't know what it is, anybody watching, go and look on YouTube. So you have the guardsmen, right, um, with a lantern, and they're walking through the Tower of London, and they've done the day this every night. They walk through the Tower of London, and then there's a guardsman there. Halt! Who goes there? The keys. Whose keys? Queen Elizabeth's keys. Pass Queen Elizabeth's keys. All is well. And I stand there, and I bellow at the top of my voice. And all the tourists and all that are there. And I got the honour of being that person. Halt! Who goes there? Because of my Scottish accent, they wanted me to, to, to do it. I was like, let's do it. So I've got, like, that was the highlight in my time um, down in London, <coughs> being a guardsman. Loads of, loads of things, like... Um, mate, mate, just five years. Just five years and being, in your own words, down and out, looking, uh, literally popping the tablets out of the package to take your own life that night. Five years later... To you know, being a Queen's guard, that's unbelievably inspiring, mate. And as I said, nothing but pride, no shame, nothing but pride you should feel because that's unbelievable. There's one more thing I want to talk about, and we haven't spoken about your significant other yet, which is a shame. I wanted to, but we've both been there, it hasn't really kind of behind every great man, and I think you are one, there's an even better woman. And I, I maybe we do this again, maybe we maybe one day down the world we jump on again because there's more we can talk about here. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paint you a picture. Okay, there you are, Caesar's Palace, in a bathtub, cigar in your mouth. You've just married your 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 brand new wife. That moment there. Quickly tell me about that moment right there. Uh, so that it was a, uh, it was another one of those moments where. Very similar to being a guardsman. Is it a dream? Is it a dream? Pinching myself like I was a guard, pinching myself in Caesar's palace. Like I've just married the most amazing woman that I've ever met in my life. Someday 
that I didn't have to hide from, somebody that is that loves me for me just be me and all my flaws, and I've got lots of flaws, lots of them, and I always hide, I always hid them. And if people ever came across my flaws, and made me, they made me feel bad for being myself. And with Steph, she just loves me for, for, for who I am, works and all. And it's like that, that, again, it's cliche. And it's like, I didn't even want to say it, right? But you know when people say, like, you, you meet your, your soulmate, you meet someone, like, and that's what it's like because we spend so much time together. We do everything together. And it's still amazing. And it's still ha our happy place, just the two of us. And my, my stepdaughter and the daft dog, Caesar, who's named after Caesar's palace, Rottweiler. He's called Caesar. They're in, they're in the family home as well. But me and Steph just watching films and watching the telly and, and having the jokes. I ask every, when I start every podcast, always the, the first question I ask and the most important question of the, of the, I ask on the podcast is, how the bloody hell are you? So, Paul, how the bloody hell are you, mate? I'm very good, thank you, mate. Good. I'm very good, but it has to be. Come on, get the fireworks! Get the fireworks back, <laughs> right, young man. So, so where can the people find you, uh, follow you, and 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 watch you? So I'm on all social media platforms. I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube channel. I've got them all. If people are watching, um, I would appreciate the most coming onto Facebook. I've got an author page. That's where I do all my talks on addiction, about how I broke away from heroin, the power of the mind, self-talk. I talk about all those things all the time. So if anybody out there is looking for help with addiction, there are thousands of hours, I'm sure you can imagine, on social media, Amy, talking about um, you know, how people help themselves. I've Obviously, if anybody is wanting either of the books, my first book is Heroin to Hero. That's on Amazon. And my new book, which we'll talk about in the next episode, or the special, um, that I've wrote my, my new book, Final Mission. Both of them are on Amazon. And, you know, and hopefully you enjoy, hopefully you, you, you enjoy the story. Yeah, I'm sure. You know? I, I loved it. So I'm sure people were going to love this. And thank you so much, mate, for your honesty, for being how candid you are. And it's, just, it's been a really riveting conversation. And it's Paul Bogie, it's P-A-U-L-B-O-G-G-I-E. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's B-O-G-G-I-E, but it's pronounced bogey, as in up your nose. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Young man, thank you so much. Until the next time, you're an absolute legend. Thank you, Paul. I told you, he was an emotional one. Um, as you heard, I almost... Almost cried a couple of times in that podcast. I had a big lump in my throat. And I want to thank Paul and his bravery and his courage for, for sharing those really personal details. Um, since that conversation 10 days ago, Paul and I, we've become friends. <laughs> He's a guy that I'm truly inspired by and I want to surround myself in my life with positive people. And that's one of the great things I've done, I've, I've learned from this podcast. Wasn't expecting it. I've got friends now that I didn't have, I didn't have before. Now people that I want to be around, people like Martin Perry, who was born with, with one working limb. Like his passion and his, his positivity has rubbed off me from our conversation and now we're mates and Paul Bogey what a guy like just 
just so, so, so powerful. What a lovely, lovely man. And I've actually invited Paul to be part of my fitness app, part of a go-go fitness in my mental fitness section because his message about changing any negative into a positive is what getting back up is all about. Like I wanna be involved with that guy. I wanna be around that guy. I wanna learn from that guy. I'm so proud of what he did. And he is, he is inspiration for anybody. No matter how tough times get, you can always get back up. So Paul, thank you once again, mate, for coming on and sharing that beautiful, beautiful story of yours. Next week, there is no Getting Back Up podcast. We're coming to the end of 2023 now, and it's Christmas. So for the next two weeks, there's going to be no podcast, but I urge you, if you're listening to this podcast right now, go back and listen to some of the amazing conversations I've had with my guests because this isn't just a podcast this is a deep dive conversation where i talk to people and they they open up their heart and they reveal their deepest darkest secrets things they've never told anybody i've spoke to people on this podcast people like scott oakley he he confessed things to me he hasn't even told his family members his closest friends had no idea like people open up their hearts for our betterment so we can learn from them. So I urge you all to go back and listen to the previous episodes of these podcasts. Every single guest, be, be, if they're famous or not, they've got lessons to teach you to help improve your life and to inspire you to get up and go after that thing you want most. With that being said, I want to thank everybody that's listened to the Getting Back Up podcast since I launched back in September 2023. We're getting there, okay? We're getting there. And we're growing every single week. I've got more people following the podcast, more people subscribing to the podcast, listening to the podcast. So if you haven't done already, go to Instagram, get back up pod and press that follow button. Go to YouTube and press that subscribe button. Please, please, please join, join the army, join the ever growing army of getting back up and help us get really up there in the podcast ranks. It really does mean a lot. Your support means so much to me personally and everyone uh, gets them back up. 2024, we roll on. We've got the Paris Olympics coming up. We've got the Paralympics coming up. I'm gonna have loads of Olympians and Paralympians on talking about their experiences, their dark, dark lows, but their massive comebacks. So please tune in every single week and get your weekly dose of hope and inspiration right here at the Getting Back Up podcast. And listen, in life, we're all gonna get knocked down over and over again. When you find yourself lying flat back on the canvas, looking up at the light with the referee counting one, two, three, you have two choices. You can stay down and get counted out, or you can find that resolve and get back up. Always take the second option and get back up and fight for the thing you want most. Take care, and I'll see you in two weeks in 2024.